If you are new or newer to Stonebridge, we are in a series that we're calling the Big Book Cover to Cover. And what I'm attempting to do is each Sunday cover one book of the Bible, start to finish. And so what I do not want to do is rehash outlines and what you do know about the book and author and time and schedules. Those are available. Those resources are plentiful online and in print. So what I'm trying to do is step back in my own study and say, what would a person who maybe is newer to the Bible need to know? as well as what does a person who knows Scripture really well need to be reminded of and not just lean or, we talked about resting on our laurels a while back, not resting on our laurels, but continuing to learn, continuing to grow. And that's been, uh, it's, been a, it's been delightful for me. I hope uh, some of you are learning. We've gotten good feedback uh, on, online and emails, so I hope it continues to minister to you. So we are in the book of Acts today, as Christy mentioned. Let me go to our friends, uh, Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa in the book I've referred to probably every third time, the talk through the Bible and read a part of their introduction to the, gospel, uh, to the, the book of Acts. Luke begins the book of Acts where he left off in his gospel. Acts records the initial fulfillment of the Great Commission of Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20 as it traces the beginning and growth of the New Testament church. Christ's last words before his ascension were so perfectly realized in the book of Acts. So this book is a transition book. This book is going, as Christie articulated really well, from these four accounts, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the outlier, John, and we're moving to this book of the action of the story, if you will, the history of what's going to happen. Now, many of you know the book of Acts, and you know the Acts 1-8 reference. And I actually want to read, 1-8 will be on the screen, but I want to read the verses leading up to this. Keep in mind, some of this, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll see that these are words Jesus is speaking. But I want to frame Acts 1-8 before we look at Acts 1-8 in some detail, and you'll see why it's such an important verse in the record of Acts. In the first account, Acts 1-1, the first account, I composed Theophilus. And remember, that was the same man he wrote in Luke. And we did a little bit of a backstory, what we know of him, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to his apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. You know, many Christians forget that after the death, burial, resurrection, he, Jesus kind of showed up unannounced at a lot of places. He walked through walls. He shows up to Thomas. He'd be no longer unbelieving but believing. We have a, a smattering of those uh, accounts. Uh, Luke just simply says that he appeared many times over 40 days. Very important number. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, this is Jesus gathering the 11 together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father, what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. I told you what the Father promised in the high priestly prayer. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to indwell you. He's going to remind you of everything I told you. He's going to teach you in the way and what you're supposed to do. So 
Luke, in this preface to Acts, is reminding the reader what's happening in the backstory. Verse, uh, four continue, uh, verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this the time which you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And remember we talked about this many, many times, and I use uh, two mountains to explain this. If you've ever climbed in the Rockies or you know, Canadian mountains, wherever, even the hills of Tennessee, it's real easy to see a false peak. You think this is the top, and you climb up, and you get there only to say, oh, there's a whole another higher mountain, because you can't see that valley. And it's one way of illustrating the way John looked at Jesus Christ. He saw a mountaintop, but he didn't see this valley, as it were, before the next mountaintop. So it's a good way to keep in mind when you're looking at prophecy and Scripture. We, can't, we can see what's the ultimatum, but we don't always see what's in between. And Jesus tells them what they were going to experience. But they're saying, are, are you going to restore the kingdom? That's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah to reign literally in Jerusalem, get Rome out of town, and run it the way the Jews and the Jewish Christians wanted it to be run. So when they come together, verse 6, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Mark it down. My, my friend Dr. Charlie Dyer often said, when any, any, whenever anyone says, the Lord's going to return on uh, April 21st, 2020, you can know that's not the date because <laughs> nobody knows. So anyway, bad joke, but I like it. Verse 8, this is what we want to look at. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Would you indulge me and read aloud with me? Let's read it again. Read aloud. It is the word of God. Let's read it well. Let's read aloud together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is a key verse. So much emphasis on this verse rightly. Uh, some of your Bibles might say to the ends of the earth. That remotest part takes a lot of, you know, it kind of makes our head scratch a little bit. That's a literal rendering in the NASB, but it's fair to say, you know, to the ends, to the end of the earth, something along that line. Let's talk about some of the key points of this one verse. First of all, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. The power, of course, was the indwelling person and work of the Holy Spirit. You all know from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come and go. He, he would come and empower Saul, and then he left. He would come and empower David, and then he would leave. And you remember after David's egregious sin uh, with the murder of Uriah and his affair with Bathsheba, Psalm 51 is penned, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, Christian songs have been written about that. And the, the, the concept, theologically, from the Old Testament was you could... Uh, lose God's spiritual influence in your life. Well, the whole book of Acts is about the indwelling, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus had explained to them. I got to go 
so I can send the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, the one who will come alongside you and not just comfort you, but he'll be with you. And that whole high priestly prayer and the teaching of John in the Gospel of John about the Holy Spirit's coming was pivotal, first and foremost, to the disciple, to the 11, soon to be 12 again, but to those men to understand what the Spirit was going to do. So the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you'll have this power. Now, the word dunamis is overused, but that's what it is. We talk about dynamite a lot, but that's not the point. There's a supernatural empowering that's going to happen to you after I am ascended to heaven, and the Father, on his schedule, will send the Spirit to indwell you. Secondly, you'll notice this witness word. And again, we've talked about some of our Christianese is unfortunate. Uh, just think of this in a legal term. If you, if you, most of us, well, a lot of us in this room, uh, good or bad, have had to give depositions at some point in our life. And if you've gone to court or gone to a trial, you have to be a witness. What are you doing? What you've seen, you're telling about it. What you've heard, you're telling about it. What you know, you're telling about it. And then you're cross-examined, perhaps, about your testimony. So let's extrapolate the Christian ease out of this word and just make it easy. What do you know? What have you seen? What do you believe? In whom are you trusting? And that, at least for me, that takes away some of the guilt and shame about not always being the best witness for Jesus. You know, you get this, you know, maybe you don't have that issue like I do, but a lot of shame and guilt about not taking opportunity. And, you know, I have friends that they go on a plane, they always lead the whole road of Christ, you know? <laughs> and that's not my fortune. I get in an argument. So, you know, <clears throat> the empowering of the Holy Spirit was to help us tell what we know, tell what we believe. And, and let me say, add caveat in, here, no one can ever argue with your story. How you have been changed, how your life is different, is inexplicable apart from the person and work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in your life. And you can stake your life on that, not because of your experience, but what he's done in your life. And Luke is saying, look, Jesus said you're going to be empowered for a purpose to be my witnesses. And then I want you to look at this. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the remotest part. I want to go to another slide that's going to show this a little differently. So uh, keep in mind, th this one verse is an extraordinary verse. And what he's doing here is geographic, individual, theological, and biblical. There's so much going on in this one verse, which is why a lot of commentaries and Bible students and BSFers and precept folks will stay here a long time. This verse is laden with information. So Jerusalem is whom? Primarily Jews. Judea and Samaria, oh, I got this also ran, Samaria. Judea would certainly include Jewish people, Samaria not as many. And then we go to the remotest part. That certainly is not Jewish territory. So the first thing we're seeing is this progression in this verse. The second thing is notice the individual player, if you will, the person most prominent in these discussions. In Jerusalem, it's Peter. He was the Jew's Jew. Made perfect sense. In, in Judea and Samaria, it's Philip, whom interestingly we don't know a lot about. What we learn comes from the book of Acts. And then in, in the remotest part is Paul. And we'll talk more about him in a moment. Paul's account 
recorded by Luke comprises more of the record of Acts than the first two. This is, I mean, this may seem a little uh, technical and tedious. This is so important to understand. What is Luke saying in this first setup? Christ told you he was going to send the Spirit to indwell you and empower you to do something. Let me explain it to you in one verse, and the whole book of Acts follows this one verse as an outline from a theological standpoint and a geographical standpoint and individuals involved in each layer of this ring. Wilkinson and Boa conclude, Acts traces the rapid expansion of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem and spreading throughout the Roman Empire. It's much more than that. So you, you all, all of us have been to a pond or a lake, maybe early in the morning you go to somebody's lake's house or your lake house, your grandpa's lake house, and you get out early, early in the morning, maybe a fog on the water, and there's not a ripple, there's hardly a bug, there's hardly a fish pot. And what do you do? You take a rock and you chunk it as far as you can and you watch what? Concentric rings go for a long time. That's Acts 1.8. Luke is telling us when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, Jesus, quote unquote, is throwing a rock in a pond. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. That's what the gospel is going to do from this little, I, I think God has a great sense of humor and I think we miss it. If you look at the Middle East today on a map and you look at Israel as its boundary today, the Mediterranean Sea on one side, narrow neck at the top, kind of gerrymanders out like this, it's smaller than the state of Connecticut. That sliver of land over against the entire Middle East over here, that sliver of land is where Christ shows up and that sliver of land is where this is launched from. And the record of Acts is going to take us from that little sliver of land to Rome, which would be modern-day Washington, D.C., on steroids. Rome was the largest, most powerful empire on the planet, save, of course, Asian dynasties, Chinese dynasties. It was the largest power in its day. At this time, nobody was more powerful than Rome, and that's where the gospel is going to end up. This is a literary masterpiece in one verse geographical, theological, individual. What is he saying, Luke recording this, about what the gospel is going to do when the Holy Spirit comes? Now, at the top of my Bible in, in Acts, I have this little triangle. It's two diamonds and a little thing in the middle. And it shows this transition. And this is oversimplified, but it helps my pea brain to remember things. Keep the word transition in mind whenever you open the pages of Acts. It's a transition from the nation of Israel to the entire world. It's a transition from the Jew to the Gentile. And it's a transition from the law to the gospel. Now notice that in the middle, that little diamond, that's the book of Acts. Now why this is such a helpful visual for me, and I hope for you, is if you're a careful student of Acts, some things don't seem to happen in the right order. Especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit, and whether or not people speak in tongues or other kinds of things. And people get wrapped around the axle on these passages. They go, wait a minute, this happened out of sequence over here, happened differently, and they get all upset. This will solve that puzzle. Because different individuals, John's disciples, for example, had a, a body of information that the apostles had more of. 
And so when these things happen, I go, wait a minute, we haven't even heard about a Holy Spirit yet. Well, this is a transition. Let me explain it to you. This is what happened when he had the high priestly prayer, and he told them, when I leave, I'm going to send the parakaleo to help you. He'll come alongside. He'll guide you in the truth. You know, arguably, as hard as this e even is for me to say, arguably, the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in your life and mine is, I'm going to put this in quotes, more important, close quote, than Jesus being on the planet physically. Take that in pencil. But that is essentially what Jesus said. I'm going to go and send a helper to you. And the helper is going to indwell every believer. The Spirit of Christ is the same thing, in my opinion, as the Holy Spirit. So that he can indwell every one of us. Had he stayed on in an ascended, in a, in a, in a resurrected form, he'd have been great. We'd have followed him around with cameras today. We'd have talked to him. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was to indwell the individual believer with the Spirit of Christ. And that's again why the doctrine of the Trinitarian gospel is non-negotiable. You must have the Spirit of Christ to understand how we are then saved. So anyway, this helps me a lot. It's every Bible I've had, I draw these little diamonds and I put this on there to remind my pea brain, don't forget when you read Acts and sometimes you're going, wait a minute, this is not happening in the right order. And what about this and this? Normal good questions for a Bible student to ask this will help us. Now, let's look at a, a wide array of general observations in the book of Acts. Um, first of all, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles. I think a better title is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what we're reading about is how the Holy Spirit affects these disciples to do what they were supposed to do, to be as witnesses, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and their most part of the world. Secondly, it's the history of Christianity and the post-ascension work from about 30 years is about all we've got. So when we close the pages on our Gospels, we're only talking three decades. There's a lot of content in these chapters for 30 years. If we look at the life of Christ in the Gospels, we primarily focus once we get past the birth narratives, on the three years of his public ministry. Now, we, we're interested in other things, but we really focus on the three years when he's out, Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, tossing tables with the disciples in the wilderness, temptation accounts, all those things we know too well, perhaps. But the book of Acts is only three decades. It's only 30 years. And if you step back and think about what happened in 30 years, it really should blow your mind. This is a spreading flame. This is lightning striking. This is a fast movement. This isn't something that happened over hundreds of years. This is a movement that cannot be controlled. Um, the theological continuity between the Abrahamic, Davidic, Messianic, New Covenant is so important. I was interviewing a guest this week. They run together. Forgive me. As I say, I've slept since then. But I was interviewing a guest this week, and we were talking. Somehow we got off on this, the importance of understanding the covenants. And I don't mean covenant theology. That's fine. I mean the Abrahamic, David Messianic, and uh, New Covenant primarily. And if you've been around Stonebridge or heard me teach, you know I, I bring this up all the time. You need to understand Genesis 12. 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 31, 31 and follow. You need to know those passages like you know John 3, 16. Because the Abrahamic covenant was the promise 
that God was going to use Abraham to bless the world, not just the Jewish nation. The Messianic promises in the Davidic covenant that there would be a Messiah on the throne of David forever in 2 Samuel 7, those for, that forever, is a, it means forever. It means forever. So the establishment of a monarchy, not Saul. Remember, Saul isn't even mentioned after his failures. We start the monarchy with David's life. David was a man for God's own heart. David loved God. And so we, we longed for a king that loved God's law, that loved God's people, that did things by the book. Didn't last very long. Of the 38 roughly kings we had, 19 always patently evil. Of the other 19, some evil, some good. You have a few outliers. You have Josiah. You have Asa who started well and didn't finish. So, but the monarchy failed. We want a king. We want to be like other nations. Well, I'm going to give you a king, but he's going to be an eternal king. He's going to be a Messiah. And then the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, and other passages like Joel 2, this is so foundational, guys, because if you don't understand this, you don't understand, you don't, you don't understand the unfolding story of Scripture. From the moment Jeremiah comes on the, uh, uh, Abraham comes on the scene for God's plan for the world, God's word is immutable. God's word is eternal. God's word can be relied upon. Don't let the world teach you theology. Go back to the book, back to the book, back to the book. Be considered an idiot. Stay with the book. Stay with the book. So these covenants are like benchmarks in the Bible storyline. Again, we go from Jews to Samaritans, which um, were hated in mass by the Jews to the Gentiles, which were worse. You know the phrase goy or goyim? I've told the story many, many times when I travel to Israel. Um, sometimes it depends on the person. It depends on, you know, there, there's a lot of different sects. S-E-C-T-S. I can't pronounce that word well, so I have to spell it. S-E-C of Judaism. And rabbis that you meet, uh, you know, for where they're from, they're enclaves. Some don't like to deal with Westerners that are tourists. Others are, you know, it just depends. And so I always try to be very kind and collegial when I talk to these folks. But sometimes I send the group off to do something. I've done it several times. I'd rather sit in a coffee shop and see if I talk to somebody. So there's one area I won't mention, but I can, there's always a bunch of Jews uh, on their coffee break, whatever. And I'll sit by one and I'll say, you know, just greetings and see how they respond. Typically, they don't like us. And uh, once in a while, I have a conversation with one. And I, would, I used to use the phrase, I'm a goy. And I had one rabbi uh, look at me, and he said, why do you use that word? Very angry at me. I said, I'm sorry. I've been around Jewish communities that talk about the goy and goyim, is non-Jews. And I won't say it was racially triggered, but it triggered something in him. And I said, well, what would you call me? I would have never in a million years anticipated what he said. He said, a missionary. <laughs> I'm a missionary. I bring people to Israel to look at the country. It's a missionary. So we had an interesting argument. But anyway, <laughs> Samaritans were sort of these also-rans, but the Gentile was the goyim. That was the world. And they were to avoid the world. They were to be separate. 
They were to follow God's law. So there's this progression. Again, we have Philip, Peter, uh, uh, Peter Philip, and Paul, and not Peter, James, and John. Uh, and so we got this, this triad of individuals with different ministry circles. We have this sum, if you will, that the Holy Spirit is coming to fulfill the new covenant promises. We're going to add Joel 2 in that in a minute. And this commission then was to the disciples. This commission is, and I don't like to use uh, equivalencies, but it's as important as as the, Adam, uh, as the Abrahamic covenant. You're going to be a blessing to the world. Acts 1.8, you're going to go to the world with this gospel. And so this is why Acts is such a critical storyline, because it tells us what happened after Jesus ascended. Now, again, we've talked about how the gospels are written, and we've talked about sources a little bit. Mark is the oldest gospel, the shortest gospel, and the most difficult gospel. Matthew is the gospel about the kingdom. Uh, Luke is a different, Luke is a more comprehensive gospel. He has more information. He has things that other gospels don't. John's the outlier. Each gospel had the big A author and the little A author. The big A author is God. The little A author is the personality, the style of Mark, of Matthew, and Luke. What's interesting for me, at least to keep in mind, was these guys had sources. They knew the story. We talked about in Mark's gospel that he probably got most of his information from Peter. Now, when we're in Luke, we get this in very illustratively and very accurately. Where does Luke get his information that he's writing to Theophilus? From all the above. The most exciting part about the Acts is that the last part of it about Paul Luke's there. Luke's an eyewitness on the ground. If you saw the movie that Caviezel did about the life of Paul, Luke is the physician who comes and visits him. And films always take a lot of liberty with how they do things, and we don't know. But we do know there was an intimate relationship between Dr. Luke and Paul. He cared for Paul. So Luke is writing what we're reading, and this second half of the book, Chapter 13 and following is all about the ministry of Paul. So Luke is an eyewitness of a lot of this information that we're reading. Um, at the highest level, keep in mind transition, keep in mind Holy Spirit, and lastly I want to talk about ethnos for just a moment. When the Great Commission is written, he says, go into all the world, uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there, there's a word in there is ethnos, ethnic groups. Now, we're in a vitriolic time with racial tensions that have perhaps not been as high since the movement of the civil rights. Um, we're bad students of history. We had a civil war over this stuff. Um, and so it, uh, while it's vitriolic and we see a lot of things that break our hearts and we don't know what, do we put BLM on or not? I mean, there's just so much vitriol. Let me give you a side sidebar here. Race is different from ethnicity. Race is a word that has been used for racial discussion. Right or wrong? It's used, it's nomenclature used to talk about races. But from a biblical theology, God talks about ethnicity. If you had your uh, DNA done with one of these little kits and sent it off, did you come back one thing? You came back Heinz 57. <laughs> right? You had all sorts of stuff in there. 
in side, side, sidebar, those tests are not as accurate as they portend. They did a study on twins, I think it was MIT or Harvard, and they sent twin DNA to all these different places, and they came in with different stories. Anyway, that's for you to think about that $120 you wasted, I mean spent. <laughs> um, so, so I was always told, I'm half Northern Italian, I'm about uh, maybe the rest over here German and a little bit Irish. Cindy is German-German. Her parentage is all German. And that explains a lot about her. That stubborn German constitution. She's a strong-headed person. She gets it by, you know, that's ethnicity, not race. Race is a nomenclature used, generally speaking, to talk about African-American or today. When I was, when I was in the 70s, you couldn't, say the word, you couldn't say black. That was racist to say black. Now I'm, I'm kind of pulled to say black because that's the word they're choosing. These are racial discussions. All I'm trying to say is the Bible doesn't talk about race in the same way our culture talks about race. Or if I can be so blunt, misapplies the Bible for their argument. The Bible talks about ethnicity. Because the Jew was, if you will, the pure people of God. And from there was Samaritans and Goyim. Make sense? So from a biblical theological standpoint, I'm not trying to pick a fight or take on the world. I'm simply observing how these words get hijacked and become very emotional by people. And granted, maybe they have good reason to have that emotion. The gospel was to spread to all ethnos. So you've got this motley bunch of disciples who are changed men, and they're to take this message by the power of the Spirit to a Judean Samaritan group and then way out on the limb to take it to these other ethnicities that know nothing about Judaism. They know nothing about Jesus Christ. They know nothing about Jerusalem or the law of God. And that unfolds in the book of Acts. Um, in this whole discussion, and I've been asked this many, many times over the year, how do you study the history of this stuff? I mean, you can read Acts again and again and again. Um, one book uh, by F.F. F. Bruce is called The Spreading Flame. I got this book probably in the late 70s, and I referred people to it again and again and again and again. It's paperback, it's ebook, it's super easy to read. Uh, Bruce does a coverage of 800 years. He starts with Acts, and he goes to about 800 A.D. and stops. And when people say, I want to study church history, I go, that's like saying you want to study, you know, American history. Where do you start? There's a lot to cover. Bruce is a good primer. So for those of you that are readers and bookworms, um, more recently, one of my former professors, Dr. John Hanna, dear brother, dear friend, uh, scary smart, uh, he just published two books in Kriegel, which is a very academic brand. And uh, it's, called the in, it's called an invitation to, got to love it, an invitation to church history. One is America. The other one's invitation to church history in the world. And you know what he did? He put pictures in it. <laughs> so even though it's a bit academic, you can digest it. Now, I would say these books are for uh, college grads. Not trying to be unkind, but if you're not a student, if you're not a reader, don't buy these books. Save your money. Do not buy these books. Um, but I get asked a lot of times about, well, how do you put your arms around this? Because the biblical account is very helpful. I need more help. I need help 
from scholars that have spent a lifetime studying Pamphylia and Greece and Macedonia that I can't get on my own. So those are some resources. That's all free. Let's come back to our observations. Now, you know the transformation of the Holy Spirit was evident. First of all, we can just look at Peter's life. Um, Remember the calendar a bit. We have Passover, and then we have technically seven weeks. Shavuot, we have seven weeks, so we round it to 49 or 50 days, depending on when you start counting. So we have Passover, and then we have Pentecost. These were Jewish festivals that were on steroids compared to Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, Fourth of July. They were very important and very exciting and very, they looked, good Jews looked forward to these festivals. I have Jewish friends in, in Tennessee that still do a Passover in their home, and they look forward to it. And it's kind of like an advent calendar almost. It's, it's kind of interesting because I've been to some of these and go, that's all you're going to say about that? Anyway, um, but they like these festivals. So from Passover, which remembers when Jesus crucified, he has the Last Supper, right? The night before he's crucified. Now we got 50 days, Pentecost. Acts picks up that storyline. So what we're seeing here, and this again is going to have a tell to the new covenant. It's going to be explaining this. And when, when Luke writes this account, he talks about the authentication of the new covenant in Acts 2. Now, let's talk about Acts 2 for just a moment. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwells people. What do we all think of immediately? Tongues of fire and some kind of speaking in some tongues or language. I mean, if you've read the story, right, you should know this. Acts 2. It's a very controversial passage. And it's sad because it shouldn't be. What happens in this event when the Holy Spirit indwells them, they're speaking in languages. They're hearing one another. And you typically hear, well, see, that's the gift of tongues. Um, careful, charismatic, neo-charismatic, classic charismatic students all understand that's not what this passage is about. There are other passages that they would appeal to to talk about that. And I want you to look at this ever so briefly uh, in Acts chapter 2 because I want you to see with your eyes what's really occurring in this day of Pentecost which we consider the birth of the church. I don't have these slides but you can listen or follow along. Um, This begins in verse, uh, let me pick it up, chapter 2, verse 8. How is it we hear each other in our own language? We hear each other in our, you, you, you see what he's saying? I'm, so let's say, uh, because of my Italian, German, Irish heritage, I, I speak Italian and German, and Cindy speaks German. You're from France, and we're in the same room. You're speaking French? I'm here in German. That's what this is saying. Don't miss it. It's so obvious, but we run to the controversy before we look at the text carefully. Now, watch what he does here in verse eight, uh, uh, verse 9. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, on and on it goes. There's at least 13 dialects. By the way, the word language is dialectos in this passage. Until you get over to verse um, 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear in our own tongues. That's the word glossa, a root of glossa, speaking the mighty deeds of God. What's happened here? We've got a group of international people. Don't forget, they're Jews. 
They're Jews that are spread across Europe in these areas. They've come for Passover. They're staying for Pentecost, the, seven week, the, four, the four weeks. Uh, seven weeks, 49 days. They're staying for that celebration. It's a big deal. And when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, think of a, a room this size, like the UN, no translators. You're speaking Mede, Persian, French, German, Italian, to use modern equivalencies, and you're hearing that person in your own mother language. That's the miracle of Pentecost. Do not miss that. I've often called it a two-sided miracle because they were speaking, but someone else was hearing them, and which makes perfect sense when the onlookers go, these people are drunk. Think if the UN all spoke at once and there were no interpreters with an earpiece telling them what other people were saying. It would sound like a cacophony of languages, but they were able to communicate. And that was the blow your mind part of, the, of Pentecost was, how is this happening? I'm here, I had a friend, we lived in D.C., he was from Guatemala, and uh, fluent in English, but he would never pray in English. So we'd have meetings and, and I'd say, hey, Freddie, close us in prayer. And he would smile and he would pray in Spanish. And I'd say, pray in English. And he goes, no, Spanish is the heavenly language. <laughs> and when I heard him pray, it was the heavenly language. It was like, wow, it sounds so much the texture, the rhythm, the way he pronounced words, because it was his mother tongue. And it came from his heart. He said, I can't think in English well enough to pray to God the way I think, the way my brain's wired to speak Spanish. If you understand that, you understand Pentecost. People were speaking in their own language. Now, some of you, how many of you speak more than one language fluently? Always intimidates me. Americans are so dumb when it comes to languages. Uh, we just don't, we, and we don't even know English that well. That's even worse, but <laughs> never mind. Uh, I'm always blown away by people who have a capacity to speak multiple languages. One of my professors was fluent in 13. That's just wrong. That's just wrong. Something has to be wrong with him, otherwise we'd worship him. You know, I mean, these people, you know anyone with a photographic memory? That's just wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. Why didn't I get that, you know? Uh, I'd love to have a photographic memory, but we don't. When we hear our own language, if you've traveled abroad to Europe, to Africa, to wherever, and you're in an airport and you stick out like a sore thumb because you're a Westerner, and all of a sudden you hear English, you're like, wait, <laughs> wait, somebody speaks English, you know, and you have this instant bond with the person. I remember going to Nigeria on this particular airway, and there were about three, it was completely packed 747, and there were three, quote, white, close quote, people on the plane. And of course, they're all speaking Hausa and Jew and these other languages that are common to Nigeria. And I remember getting off the plane, there was this old couple in front of me. And I, well, I don't know how we got connected, but I heard English. <laughs> you speak English? You know, uh, There's something about your mother language. When you're away from home and depending on someone else to translate, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting, even if you're working at a language. The miracle of Pentecost was known languages, and we're all hearing each other talk about, please notice, the mighty deeds of God. Not politics, not Caesar, not Rome, 
the mighty deeds of God. And that's why this was such an amazing miracle. Verse, chapter 2, verse 11 again. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Don't miss the obvious. What is happening to these group of Jews who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, who are now speaking their mother tongue, hearing it in their mother tongue, or other people speaking their... What's happening? They're blown away. And they're talking about God and God's work. This was the match that struck and set afire the church as we know it. And that's why we often talk about Pentecost being the birth of the church. Let me read from Stanley Toussaint. Instead of being drunk, which is what they were accused of, believers were experiencing what was described in Joel 2. In Peter's words, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now let me pause for just a second there. For you that really know your text, there is a problem with what Joel prophesied and what they experienced. What Luke is saying, what he's recording here, is exactly accurate. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that the Holy Spirit would be poured into them and they would speak with tongues. The rest of the prophecy is yet. That's what you have to keep in mind. And that's what Toussaint continues. This means Pentecost fulfilled what Joel had described. However, however, the prophecies of Joel quoted in the rest of Acts chapter 2, verse 19 to 20, were not, and I put the word yet, not yet fulfilled. The implication is, the remainder would be fulfilled if Israel repents. It's very important. It's a bit detailed, but for you to study it. Let's continue. Uh, let's talk about the transformation of the disciples after this experience. Peter, who's denied Jesus three times, is now the spokesman. I don't care. You know, he, he didn't go to some Dale Carnegie course. He didn't take the disc or the Enneagram. None of that stuff. He didn't, you know, somehow figure out who he was. Holy Spirit indwelled him. He was different. A denier became an apologetic speaker. And his first sermon shook the world. You can't explain a 180-degree change like that apart from a work of God. You have Stephen who preaches this incredible sermon, so incredible they stone him to death. As I say, it had a rocky ending, but, you know, he never had to be on a committee. So, you know, yeah, I know, that's bad. I'm here all week. Um, they are continuing the work of Jesus Christ in the life of the Jews, and it's going to spread to the Gentiles. And we have this foundational appeal, and then we go very quickly to Acts 2.42. When we started at Stonebridge a little two years ago, uh, Wayne and I talked about these I call them whetstone passages. You sharpen your sword, you sharpen your knife on the whetstone passage. And we talked about this again and again and again when we began. And I'm going to read, I want you to read with me. Let's read Acts 2.42 together. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. One more time. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, prayer. Briefly, apostles' teaching. If you are a person who's read uh, Bible study materials, they used to have a term they used called the apostolic teachings of the cross. That was a very common title for commentaries, the apostolic teachings of the cross. What are they referring to? 
what the New Testament tells us about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was not yet codified. It was not in a book form. It wasn't certainly in a phone or a tablet. These were oral stories being told. And so, first of all, there's this ongoing devotion, and I love the order to the apostles' teaching. What are these men telling us about the Old Testament Scripture would be another way of thinking about it. How are they seeing this now that Christ has come? Do we understand Isaiah 53 now? Do we understand Psalm 22 now? Do we understand what the Abrahamic covenant meant now? Because now we have a lot more information because Christ came. He lived, he died, he was buried, came back from the dead, and he gave the Holy Spirit. And now we are empowered to tell the whole world what Abraham was up to from the very beginning. Secondly, fellowship. And boy, has this become a gummy word. Um, Christianese is a terrible thing, and that's why we all need ongoing re-education. Um, fellowship, simply put, is an alliance of people that think the same thing growing to maturity. It's an alliance of people growing to maturity. Now, what I mean by that is not indoctrination. When you have a Bible study or a fellowship group or a community group or a neighborhood study, whatever you want to call it, that's great. Those are all wonderful. If you're going to talk about fellowship, it's not what you baked and what you drank. It's not trading recipes. Those are all wonderful things. I like to eat those recipes. I like to drink that coffee, whatever it is. I love the meal part of that. But the fellowship is, are we on growing and maturing? Are we in the Word a little bit? Are we talking about how we're growing as believers? So if you're part of a study, you need to be that one sort of, you know, nagging person that says, hey, are we going to read? Are we going to pray? Are we going to talk about something besides the latest movie or the latest? I mean, what are we all talking about right now? The election. Eat, sleep, drink. Watching it, talking about it, complaining, aggravated, blood pressure goes up. Um, you know, there's a verse that talks about a peace that surpasses all comprehension that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I hear anybody talking about that. It, very interesting when we dropped a couple of interviews this week on, in context, uh, some of the backlash we get. Like, did you even listen to the interview before you went off? It's kind of fun. <laughs> Fellowship ought to somehow be encouraging one another all the more. Third, breaking bread. Breaking of bread was a communal aspect in the first century, very different than today. Uh, we have, a, I mean, for a while, uh, we have the little, they look like coffee mate things, you know. They got the wafer and the little grape juice in them. We'll use those for a while till who knows what's going to change like. Anyway, we used to have a, you know, thing of bread and a you know, dip your, whatever. Uh, you know, the, that's what we call Lord's Supper and some churches communion. It's a wonderful thing. It's an important thing to do. It's one of the joys we have as believers to appreciate that. Breaking a bread for them was far more than that. It was a communal meal. Now, think, I was at dinner last night. I've been at dinner twice this week. I look forward to having dinner with people. I'm going to have a lunch today with some friends from out of town. I look forward because we're sitting around a table. We're eating some good food. We're having great conversation. I'm putting eyes on people I hadn't seen in a while. And the conversation may go here and there and yonder. But is there anything, unless you're antisocial and need therapy, sorry, no one being kind, is there anything more fun than hanging out with people around a kitchen table or a dinner table or going out to a nice meal? 
Don't you love that? If you don't, that's good. We can save money on you. I love that. I love breaking bread, metaphorically having a meal with people I want to spend time with. The early church has been aposynagoge. They're kicked out of their relationships if they follow Jesus Christ. Who are you going to hang out with? Your new friends. Your new friends. What are you going to look forward to? A meal with my new friends. There's no civic center. There's no school to go meet in. There's no conference center to rent. So you go from house to house. And that's how they fellowshiped. And then finally, um, we have prayer. Prayer, of course, again, when we started uh, Stonebridge, we talked about exposition, discipleship, and prayer. And not that those are the only things or they should be the right things, but at this point in my life, and this point in Wayne's life, our steering committee, these are the three liabilities of the church today. They're not teaching the Bible, they're not making disciples, and we're, we all need help in prayer. And I don't want to say that in a negative way, but I don't know how to say it in a positive way. I just don't. And one reason we give out the handbook to prayer to people who say we want to be part of Stonebridge, it's paint-by-numbers scripture on how to pray. I've been so encouraged by you when I mentioned the book. I need a book of it. We keep running out. We bought five, six hundred copies so far, and we'll get some more. Um, But we give the book out and say do it for 90 days and just see. I'm not going to ask you if you're doing it. I'm not going to check up on you. I'm not going to guilt you. Just try it for 90 days. Sending, I love it. We use other resources as well. But prayer, uh, Howard Hendricks said it best. The believer, when, when he or she grows in prayer, it's understanding our dependence is not partial but total. Our dependence is not partial but total. When you and I do not pray, we are depending on our own skill set. And you know what? We can go a long way on our own skills, our own negotiations, our own fill-in-the-blank. You know where we have trouble? When you get COVID. When you get cancer. When a loved one goes on a ventilator. When your marriage is struggling. And then what do we do? We get real busy with prayer. And we ask people to pray for us. That's, it's important. It's good. Don't hear me criticizing that. That's wonderful because the body of Christ should pray for one another when, not if, when we go through hard things. But what we're missing is that relational aspect of prayer. The longer I live, I think my prayer is a one-way street, meaning I'm learning more about God. I'm aligning myself to His Word. I'm aligning myself to the Psalms, the Psalter. I'm aligning myself to what He says about Himself, not what I want. And this is one of the problems with Western prayer life. We have a list of things we want him to do. Yes, he said ask. Yes, he said ask. But the Psalter is full of praise and lament. I love what Jason did this morning with confession. It's about praise, lament, confession, thanksgiving. Um, You know the ACTS? We're in Acts. Hey, ACTS, the navigators came up with, I think it was, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You know, if you use ACTS, you know what will happen? You won't have a whole lot of supplication because you'll run out of time. I've been praying too long, I stopped. 
If you're adoring God's character vertically, you're holy, you're kind, you're merciful, you're just, you're unmoved by the current political condition, you're unmoved by riots in the street, you're unmoved by wars in the world, you're unmoved, you, you look at his character, adoration, confession. And confession just doesn't mean confessing your sins, it's acknowledging who God is. And then you're thankful. How many of you are thankful you slept in a comfortable bed last night? You probably had AC or heat. Anybody turn your heat on last night? Wimp. <laughs> this is the best time of year, man. I was telling someone the other day, when I was younger, I would have, I would have slept in my sleeping bag on the porch last night. <laughs> I'm older now. Uh, <clears throat> you thank God for the, you know, your wife, that she likes you. You thank God for the food in your pantry. You thank God that your kids are basically on track. You really thank God for grandchildren. Man, she, you, wow, should have had them first, right? <laughs> you thank God that you come here. I hope you did. One of the most encouraging things we hear is when people say, we can't wait to go to church. Wow. You thank God for filling in the blank. You have a job right now in the midst of all this craziness. If you thank God, you still have a job. Are you, are you retired and you got everything paid off? Have you thanked God that he's carried you to this point in your life where you don't have to worry anymore? Well, sure we worry, but not like we did when we were 20, 30, 40. It's different, isn't it? Adoration, confession, thanking him, and then supplication. And yes, we are to ask God. Now, I just divert there because these four foundational things, devotion to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer, have never changed. Oh, yeah, yeah, churches use Acts 2.42 as the mission statement of their church for good reason. For good reason. When these people understood, when the Holy Spirit indwelt them, what that meant, this is what they were about. Are we any better or more sophisticated or further down the road than them? Continuing uh, observations, these are high-level things. The church grew in Acts 2.41. It was about 3,000 people came to Christ. In Acts 4.4, about 5,000 come to Christ. And as you've heard me talk, there's a discussion about whether that's a head of household or an individual. Doesn't really matter. 8,000 is pretty impressive. 16, 25,000 is more impressive the way we measure. Doesn't matter. A lot of people are being converted and following this Jesus a whole host of other things. Stephen's sermon and stoning uh, Saul, who becomes Paul. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. There's persecution. There's scattering of believers. We have the Philippian, uh, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian. We have Saul's conversion and confrontation in chapter 9. We have Cornelius' incredible vision. I love that story. Peter's minding his own business. Cornelius minding his own business. They get this kind of similar crazy vision. The sheep comes down, take, kill, and eat, take, kill, and eat. I've never eaten anything unclean before. Go. Go down there and meet Cornelius. Have a shrimp fry while you're there. <laughs> Then we have imprisonments. All isn't easy. They're thrown in prison. You know the phrase in the hymn, my chains fell off? That comes out of Acts when they're in chains. Chapter 12, verse 7. Jerusalem Council. I love Jerusalem Council. Jerusalem Council is these Jewish believing missionaries left Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Paul and Barnabas are out leading people to Christ left and right. 
word in Jerusalem hears about it. What's this about? These Gentiles coming to know Jesus. Put it, if you, have you been to Rome? Think, think about being at the Vatican and uh, some of the people in interesting clothes say, we don't know what they're doing in Nigeria or Portugal. What are they doing over there in Bolivia? Get over here and tell us what's going on. That's the Jerusalem Council. That's exactly what happened Jerusalem Council. What are you doing? And you need to come give us, we've heard these reports. And so Paul and Barnabas come back and they give a report and they explain what happens. And so Paul and Barnabas, it's like they're kind of sent to the waiting room and wait for the, wait for the committee's decision. And the apostles, led by James, come back and they give him some instructions I won't go into for time's sake. But they basically tell them, okay, they don't have to really become a Jew, but they ought to do these things. And that's what every committee's done ever since. <laughs> that's what committees do. I love the fact it's incorporated in the book of Acts. Acts 6 was the first internal problem. Acts 15 is the second big internal problem. And men come to bear and they make some pretty unfortunate decisions. We've got Paul and Silas singing at midnight. We've got the, the spread of the gospel, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Mars Hill, Corinth, Ephesus, the so-called missionary journeys. If you've not done a Greek uh, a tour and gone to some of these places, Jesus Christ, uh, the apostle Paul was there. He was on Mars Hill. He was in We went to Ephesus a few years ago, Sydney and I did. Ephesus makes Israel look like, uh, I mean, Ephesus is huge. It is huge. It housed the largest ancient library known in history. Uh, the power of Rome was unbelievable. And that's where Paul is in Ephesus. They're about to kill him. Well, by the end of the book, uh, Luke has basically shown us from Jerusalem to Rome in 30 years. I want to end with chapter 28, verses 31 and 30, 30 and 31, the last two verses. He as Paul, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The story of getting him to Rome is one for another time. Some of you may know the name Fred Smith Sr. That's a very common name, but Fred Smith Sr., who was a Christian businessman. He was very involved in power and gas and his own companies. Um, and he wrote a bunch of books. He worked with Caterpillar and uh, uh, Mobile Oil and companies like that. He and John Maxwell co-authored some things. Cindy and I got to know um, Fred when, my, during my time in Dallas. He died at 92 years of age in 2007. And Cindy and I went to visit him in 2007. I was speaking in Dallas, and uh, I called to see if I could go see him. He had this thing called, uh, I think it was called uh, Coffee with Fred. And um, as he'd gotten older, he'd, his wife of 67 years had died. His daughter, uh, who was in her 70s, uh, cashed in and came home to take care of both parents as they were dying. Uh, Fred Smith never lost his joy, never lost his smile, never lost his love for the Lord and for the Bible. And we pulled up into their little modest home in North Dallas, and they had one of those vans with the special contraption. And out comes Fred on one of those wheelchairs, not a tip, I mean the big one that you know, supported your legs and your head and your neck. And he was, he was a mess physically. His mind was sharp as a tack. He had a great sense of humor. 
and they wheel, uh, Barbara, I helped her wheel them into their area. They kind of, you know, you've been here, some of you, you clean out the den to put the hospital bed in. That's what you do. And so that's what they'd done. And we went in there and they had this little tete-a-tete with them. And he wasn't complaining, but he was just making an observation about something she hadn't done the way he wanted it done. And she said to him, Dad, what do we say? And they said it in harmony. I may not do it the way you want, but we get it done. I loved it. So anyway, um, they sat there and Cindy and I sat with Fred who could barely move. He could move an arm and a shoulder. He was, you know, whatever was going on at 92. He loved Christ. He loved the Word. He had a smile on his face as big as Dallas. And people from all over came to sit in that room and to ask Fred Smith questions. His daughter told me that on Fridays they would do this thing called Coffee with Fred. He said, she said, Michael, we have 30, 40 businessmen and they can't get back to the bedroom. And they stand and sit in the hallway in the kitchen on folding chairs. And we have a little thing so they can hear him. And they throw questions down the hall of the bedroom and ask Fred questions. How many new, how many 92-year-olds do you know like that? We get ornery. We get lonely. We withdraw. Listen. His problems were as big as yours and mine. And I read this, and I I can see Paul like a Fred Smith. He's in house arrest, and people are coming to see him for two full years. And they're lining up. They're lining up. Because when God said, I want that gospel to go to the world, Abraham, when he reaffirmed that the messianic kingdom would be eternal, when he talked about the new covenant and the spirit being poured out on his people and they would speak, not just in languages, but speak the gospel. And the book of Acts is a quick 30-year chronicle of that spreading flame. Whoosh, it went across the world. Now here's, here's the question for you and me. Do you still think it's happening? Are we Acts chapter 1434. Or are we one of the less popular chapters of Acts as a people of God? The exciting thing about this is it's His involvement, not ours. It's His work. You and I have one simple thing to do to be obedient, to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to be in fellowship, to break bread. And to grow as disciples and look at the opportunities he gives you uniquely. This is the most freeing, I hate the word gig, you're ever going to have. Can you live as a believer in Jesus Christ with a smile on your face?